Hello, and welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with writers that have earned their independence. Today, my colleague Hamish McKenzie is talking to Emma Beals. She's an investigative journalist and an analyst that covers the rise of ISIS and the wars in Syria and Iraq, and she's been doing it since 2012. And during her time over there, reporting on how these conflicts work has become so dangerous that like, the very tools that you use to do the job have totally changed. And so journalists in these targets of these wars, basically, are turning t- more to digital tools to augment their reporting. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. One thing to note, the audio at times is a little spotty, but overall it's completely listenable. Uh, Emma was conducting over kind of a spotty Wi-Fi connection, so this is our, you know, foreign correspondent <laughs> moment, I guess. Um, but it's, it's a great interview. I think you'll really enjoy listening to it. Um, without further ado, here is Hamish McKenzie and Emma Beals. All right, Emma Beals, welcome to the Substack podcast, and thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start off by uh, making a disclaimer and an apology because we are both New Zealanders, uh, which means we have um, some accents that might make it a little bit difficult for about 90% of our audience to understand. (laughs) And we'll probably both start speaking extra Kiwi as we go along. (laughs) Well, actually, anytime I'm talking to a Kiwi, that kind of happens. So uh, let's try and catch ourselves. Um, so, uh, you are a freelance journalist covering, um, among any, many other things in your career, the, the war in Syria. And you, right now, are based in Beirut, if I understand correctly? Yes, yeah, I'm recording this um, with you from, from Beirut at the moment. In an NPR studio, if, I, if I'm right about that? <laughs> I couldn't comment on that. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. A studio of unknown provenance somewhere in Lebanon. Um, so can you tell me how you ended up in Beirut as a journalist covering uh, Syria and um, getting into war reporting? Well, I've been covering Syria for six years now, um, and I haven't always been based in Beirut. I've been here uh, sort of on and off most of the time since the beginning of last year, so the last sort of 18 months, two years. Um, Prior to that, there was a period of time where I was mostly based on the Turkish-Syrian border, so in Gazi and Tabakilis, and then a bunch of other time where I I sort of bounced back and forward from the region to London and and various other places. but I sort of having covered it as well from from Jordan and Iraq and in Syria itself. Um, so Beirut has sort of been a um, pragmatic move as the war, the trajectory of the war changed. So there was a period of time where it made sense to be on the Turkish border. Um, it was when we could still go into the country from that side, um, and it it seemed like the the armed opposition were the sort of the ascendant. Um, party in the conflict and then it sort of got too too dangerous for us to be reporting from that side of the conflict and even from the border to be quite honest um so during 2014 particularly later in 2014 as um you would have seen on on the news and so forth um it took a very dark turn for western journalists and aid workers that were operating in the country so around that time i the end of 2014 i, I stopped living um on the border and then by the beginning of last year, it was very clear that the um, government was very much um, in control of the trajectory of the conflict. So it made sense to sort of be in Beirut and people can come out of Damascus and speak to you. And there's a lot more kind of um, 
diplomatic um, and humanitarian community here that you can be speaking to and trying to understand what's happening and really getting a feel for um, uh, for the war and to be able to sort of cover it um, in that way. Um, yeah, so six years later, I'm still here. It's kind of uh, difficult to look away at this point. Yeah, and I want to dig into some of that stuff and what it's like to live those experiences and, and try and be a reporter in such a fraught situation. Uh, but let's start off with a little bit of lighter uh, lighter stuff before we get there. Um, New Zealand's a quiet, small, peaceful country at the bottom of the planet where people mostly don't think about that country. And you left it and ended up in this situation. Uh, so let's start off with, with why, why did you leave New Zealand? Um, so I left New Zealand quite a while ago now, so about 13 years ago. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to leave. <laughs> I grew up in Taranaki. Um, and <laughs> you grew up, you grew up in, a, in a, a lovely rural area uh, on the west coast of the North Island of New Zealand for, for people who are unaware of what uh, Taranaki is. <laughs> yeah, it's also very remote. So it's mm. sort of four or five hours drive from even another decent sized town. Um, and, you know, much like Beirut, you can surf and ski within half an hour of each other which is also our claim to fame. <laughs> That's why I ended up here. But um, there wasn't much going on, to be honest. Um, and so I sort of knew that I wanted to be involved in whatever it was that was happening outside of there without really quite knowing what that was. Um, and so I first moved to Australia before I, you know, I moved back again after Australia. And then in 2005, went to South America and then London and sort of, you know, um, in seeking adventure and something more interesting than what was going on at home, um, which I seem to have found the most extreme version of. I mean, you didn't have to overdo it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm a bit of an overachiever in that respect. But um, I, And then the kind of – so I had had this amazing – um, journalism lecturer in New Zealand who had sort of explained um, war reporting and so forth to me in quite some detail and had really sparked some interest in um, in conflict and the impacts of it and how conflict is reported. So I was looking to do sort of um, postgraduate study looking in more detail at the way that the Arab Spring was being reported mm. and then thought, oh, I could just go and report on it so, so what was it what was so, it that's what was it that sparked that interest because for many journalists it's it's i mean it's the stuff that sort of makes a journalist's reputation and proves that you are for real a journalist but for many others it's dangerous and they don't want to touch it so what was it for you that got you curious about war reporting um i think again it's that thing of being from somewhere where it just it, this it seemed so alive seeing the way that my um Lecturer spoke about it, and she was somebody that had um, re reported on war for a, a number of years. Um, and there was a way that she spoke about it which seemed very interesting. And then I was kind of just always interested in um, foreign affairs and had followed particular events like the American invasion of Iraq and so forth in um, great detail and that was during the time where you could start to follow these conflicts with some detail from New Zealand so you could be reading blogs and um, back then it was 
goodness, I can't even remember what it would have been, some sort of WordPress sites, and there was Riverbend, and there was um, this American girl, Marla, who had gone off to start Iraqi Body Count. And so there were these kind of inspiring individuals who you suddenly had access to with the start of of the um, internet, really. God, I sound old. Um, I remember these (laughs) days, and Juan Cole and and, and informed comments, et cetera. Yeah, mm. and it sort of brought something that was so, so far away um, to life in New Zealand for the first time, having been sort of so um, remote and secluded from anything else that was happening in the world, um, always off in our little island. And so I think there was that that trajectory. And then, of course, when the Arab Spring came along, it, um, you know, and I use that term loosely because we all now know that it was a problematic term to use, but mm. at the time it felt like this kind of incredible moment of change, um, both socially but also with um, respect to how it was being reported, the way that the, the internet and social media was helping to break down these closed societies, the way that uh, that was helping people to report it both from a distance and um, up close and personal. And so there were all of these things that were kind of coming to a head that were things that I had watched um, progress from the very beginnings of them um, during my adult life. And so that seemed like a, for some reason, some sort of natural um, situation or, or culmination of events to become very interested in. And what, so you've done a bit of uh, television, you've done some radio, you've done some prints. Like, what, what do you consider yourself primarily? Uh, are you a, a print reporter or a TV reporter? Um, well, these days I'm doing much more like analysis and research than straight reporting, um, which was born of kind of people coming to me and saying, well, you've thrown all these stones at us. What would you suggest that we do? Um, hmm. <laughs> always like, always inconvenient. <laughs> aren't you supposed to have the answers? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just supposed to tell you when you're wrong. Um, and so in that respect, uh, you know, what I've, what I've done here has kind of morphed. And I think that part of that is... Um, by virtue of trying to understand um, one's utility in a situation like Syria. And I think that Syria has changed journalism, it's changed humanitarianism, it's changed politics and global affairs. And so in all of those respects, um, there has been a space to kind of um, perhaps mould different sectors or mediums um, into... Just a quick note. This is where we lost the connection for a little bit. So we had to call back, start over again, pick up where we left off. You made several points there, both uh, all of which sound kind of deep, but you, you mentioned one that caught my interest in particular, and you said that you think that Syria might have changed journalism, and I'm just wondering what you meant by that. Um, well, I think it's changed journalism in, in the same ways that it's changed... Um, uh, lots of other sectors, but one of the particular ways that it's changed uh, journalism is the amount of remote reporting that's had to be to be done in Syria, and that was sort of by virtue of the danger and by virtue of the government not wanting to let journalists in and ISIS not wanting to let journalists, journalists in and so forth. So a lot of the reporting that you have seen has been... Um, curated in terms of like trying to find sources inside and speaking to them um, and trying to pull together the information that you need to understand what happened or to gain some sort of understanding that of what happened and it's also been overlaid with um, the ability to do 
reporting like um, open source investigations, which is something that we've only been able to do with this proliferation of information making its way out onto the internet through Twitter um, and through sort of satellite imaging and so forth. So you've been able to have events where people are able to verify when certain things happened based on um, looking at sat images. So you can tell when a building was bombed. We'll certainly narrow down the number of days between satellite images where it disappeared. Um, you're able to look at an image and geolocate it and try and understand if, if the place that people are saying that this photograph um, happened actually happened in that place and be able to verify that with some degree of, of certainty and also um, just the sheer amount of kind of citizen journalism or, or local journalism or just regular people putting pictures on Twitter, you've been able to try and verify particular war crimes or things that have happened by taking photos of attacks and understanding which buildings they hit, how many people might have been hurt, um, looking at the pictures of, say, um, fragments of the weapons and try and understand where the weapon came from, what kind of weaponry it is, how it was put together, the you know, and then you can understand how it was launched and therefore who is the person that launched it. So using all these different techniques that previously hadn't been been used to try and overcome the fact that actually access has been a huge problem in a way that it perhaps hasn't in previous conflicts because journalists haven't been such a target before. Mm -hmm. So on balance, do you think that is a gain or a loss given that you've got, you, you've got all these new tools and sort of crowdsourcing, but you have lost the access? Um, I think it's a, a bit of both. I mean, ideally, if you could have both, that would be the best option because having the access allows you to see a place, understand what it looks like, understand what it smells like, understand what it feels like, understand how the society works, how people are reacting to each other. When you talk to somebody in front of you, you can kind of get that gut feeling of if they're lying. You can go to where something happened and see it for yourself and try and investigate it that way, which is obviously um, a superior kind of of way of investigating. Um, so if we could have both, it would be wonderful. But, um, you know, this other way that it, uh, Syria has changed things, and it's not solely Syria, but it's kind of where it came to a head, was this targeting, active targeting of journalists. So you sort of had previous wars where, you know, all the guys who went to Bosnia and so forth tell us about these great sort of times they had driving back and forth across front lines to do their reporting, which is just something you could never have done in Syria. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, that's something that I don't know if we'll ever get back is that ability to not be completely shut out of, of these kind of conflicts because these these um, nefarious actors now see that there's some, some benefit and utility in doing that. So to get to that uh, targeting point in just a second, but you said uh, reporters covering uh, Bosnia, etc., had great times driving back between uh, back and forth between the front lines. It doesn't sound to me like a great time necessarily. I'm just wondering why you use that term in particular. Um, I guess great times in terms of ability to do the job. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the pursuit of journalism, it was uh, uh, much simpler. But they also, um, you know, while some of it was very, very hard, mm. they do tend to talk about that conflict in a way that they haven't really with conflict since. And, and a lot of the people that I've spoken to who covered that and Syria, either as humanitarians or journalists and so forth, have told me that that, that feeling of kind of emotional investment um, that a lot of people covering Syria have has, is kind of the first time that they've seen that sort of um, 
real buy-in to a situation um, from the press corps and, and so forth since the Bosnia um, situation. Right. And what was this realization like when you, when it dawned on you, although, I mean, it was a pretty quick and brutal dawning, uh, that reporters were fair game in, in terms of uh, at least one side of the fight? Um, well, it kind of came in slightly in phases because, of course, the, the targeting of Marie Colvin um, in 2012, February 2012, I think it was, um, was fairly shocking because it was it was reasonably quickly evident that she had been targeted in a um, rebel media um, centre where she had been filing for the Sunday Times. And so that was this first moment of, wow, they actually seem to have targeted her, but... It was it was fuzzy enough to begin with that we didn't hadn't quite appreciated it, and then as you know by 2014, um, obviously watching friends and colleagues be um, be killed very brutally was it was hugely shocking. Um, I don't think you can really pre- sort of prepare yourself for something like that for for understanding that there are people in the world who kind of can approach things with that degree of um, cynicism almost, really, you know, that to be able to stand back from looking at this as a person and look at it ideologically or brutally or, or so forth. Um, so for us, sort of, particularly the younger members of, of the press corps, that was a really big um, shock and a, and a wake-up call and made us kind of realise that um, you wouldn't necessarily... Uh, come out of these kind of scrapes in this context. How many friends have you lost through uh, these means? Oh, um, I think I've lost count. <laughs> yeah, oh. Syria is pretty brutal. There's like, uh, I mean, fixes, um, friends, people that I've stayed with, relatives of friends and people I've stayed with, and then obviously. Um, uh, close friends of, of mine as well so um, it's a pretty consistent drip feed of misery to be honest and what makes you not just leave or stop covering the war given that trauma well <laughs> maybe it's the trauma <laughs> part of me is like I can't look away at this point um, the other part is there's a couple of reasons and one is that having done it for six years I kind of now feel um, some responsibility to stay because you have this natural churn within the various um, sectors so the journalists the humanitarians the diplomats so on everybody kind of goes on to the next posting after a couple of years and you lose that historical understanding and memory of what happened Um, and so I sort of do feel some sort of responsibility to stick around and utilize the knowledge that I built up over that time um, and the other um, thing is, I think there's still some good to be done. Um, and it might sound sort of woefully idealistic at this point. And I think that that space is closing. Um, and I think that the kind of good that can be done is, to some extent, tinkering at the edges while Rome burns, or however that saying goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still space to try and push for. Um, outcomes that are potentially a little bit more just or less unjust um, 
And so while that space exists, I think I'll stick around. What kind of things can you hope for at this point? (laughs) With Syria? Goodness. Um, I mean, at this point, like in the immediate term, the big hope, I guess, that everybody has is that there will be some kind of deal for Idlib. So Idlib is in a province in the northwest of the country. There's 2.6, 2.93-ish million people living there. Um, over a million of those are people that are d- displaced from other areas of the country. Two mil- nearly 2 million of those are people in need, so people who require humanitarian assistance just to get by day to day. A lot of them have been evacuated to that area from other places around the country during these kind of so-called reconciliations, which tend to involve a lot of military pressure and long sieges and hunger and and so forth. And some people who have not wanted to go back under the control of the government have um, been evacuated, quote-unquote, evacuated Mm -hmm. to Idlib. So there's a couple of hundred thousand of the people there have already been suffered through one of these, you know, terrible kind of ongoing sieges and, and campaigns. And this is the last area that's held, you know, the last big pocket that's held by the armed opposition and is the next one in the government's kind of crosshairs. Now, if we are going to see in Idlib what we've seen in Eastern Ghouta and Aleppo and Dara, um, it will be a humanitarian crisis, the likes of which we have not, we can't really imagine. Um, it will be brutal and bloody. These people have nowhere to go. There's millions of them. Um, and it. no one's really doing that much about trying to stop it and this is one of the more sort of confusing aspects of the conflict there's a big meeting on today um, where some folks are trying to work out a solution where there'd be some sort of safe zones Um, but it's looking increasingly likely that the offensive there will start very soon and in terms of like hope (laughs) we should all be hoping that something immediate and, and, and fairly major happens to try and avert the kind of disaster that we might see in Idlib. Um, In terms of the rest of the country, I think the kind of trajectory towards government control is pretty much signed, sealed, delivered at this point. Um, And one of the problems there is that a a peace deal or a political transition that makes any meaningful changes for the people living in Syria in terms of safety and security is probably not going to happen, certainly not going to happen in a way that... um, makes immediate sort of um, large-scale changes to the the top of the administration. Um, So in that respect, a lot of what you need to sort of hope for, I would be hoping for, is um, some sort of system whereby people are able to maintain the right to their own properties, for example, um, not have those expropriated and developed by... um, regime, um, cronies and so forth, that people are entitled to voluntary and safe return um, from the places that they live as refugees um, and that there is some kind of civilian protection offered to them when they return so they're not arrested, they don't disappear into the gulags to get tortured, that they're able to live some kind of um, reasonably normal life. Um, until such time as the country or, or the world can get their shit together, frankly, and um, create a, an improved situation. So this is what I mean by we're kind of tinkering around at the edges at this point. The hope is like is very small, but there is space for, for solutions that are more just than they might be if we don't do anything. Right. And 
given that you're writing about this well now from an, an analyst's perspective and you've got a, a newsletter on on substack called syria in context which everyone should read um uh, what's the url for that by the way just while while we're on the call um i know what it is if in case <laughs> it's the the url is t and e dot substack dot com t stands for tobias and e stands for emma uh t and the word written out e dot substack dot com so if you want to be on top of all um all the stuff and hear it direct from emma and tobias and that's where you should go but the point is you write about this from um a, a kind of uh dispassionate perspective almost and journalism is the same you can't let too much of yourself seep into the stories and yet these are such personal stories and there is such personal emotional trauma involved and you for instance like you've just mentioned in Idlib we may be about to see a humanitarian crisis on a scale almost unimagined so how do you keep that sense of remove while you're doing this work um I kind of don't like I think there's a way to write about these things that is I mean <laughs> my mom said to me the other day your Twitter account's got really dark um, <laughs> I think I've just become increasingly um, I, I sort of refer to myself as the doom goblin um, so rather than completely dispassionate I've got a bit more like this is going to be awful and it's on all of us we're all terrible that we let this happen um, because uh, I just sort of feel very despondent a lot of the time about um, the lack of action that's gone into any of this. Um, I, I think the, you can keep, you can be dispassionate in the way that you explain things or you write them because I think that you don't necessarily cut through by screaming because we're, as we've, I think after Aleppo, we all felt like we had screamed into the abyss you know that was very emotional watching this this huge military campaign and this like horror take place minute by minute by minute um and the coverage was very kind of frenzied um and it did nothing so you can kind of tie yourself out like screaming and screaming and screaming and feeling like um if you use more heightened language or show the bits of you that are screaming a bit more but it doesn't make any difference so <laughs> in some ways there's some utility in like trying to maintain that slight distance in the way that you write and then just you know taking a boxing class or something crying a lot right okay so I, I don't want to uh, dwell too much on the, the hopelessness side of things <laughs> but the, the your Goblin of Doom Twitter account is an interesting uh, thing here that sort of dovetails with what we're trying to do here at Substack um Jack Dorsey the other day tweeted that it's critical that journalists documents validate and refute information from the likes of Alex Jones at Infowars and you had a pretty pithy response to that that traveled widely on Twitter and and your response was I'm just going to read it out, out here for the listeners journalists report facts it's not their job to rebut every insane conspiracy theory that's dreamed up as a counter narrative we're collectively getting dumber because the reality-based half of the world is being asked to fact-check the fantastical half at expense of new knowledge. Which I think is an amazing tweet. Um, and I wonder what drove you to writing it. Well, um, so I know that the whole sort of 
drama about Alex Jones was very much focused around um, Alex. I mean, the drama about Jack was a, was Alex Jones focused, but having covered Syria and seen like the use of propaganda extensively by, in particular by the Russians um, and various others that picked up their ways of doing things. I mean, it, there was certainly extensive propaganda from ISIS and so forth. But once the Russians got involved, there was this very clear shift toward um, an attempt to weaponize information, an attempt to cloud um, people's understanding of the truth, an attempt to kind of um, suggest that uh, there was some sort of balance between deeply researched journalism and angry shills tweeting fake things. And there was kind of these useful idiots used um, in this campaign. And as we've seen with the chemical weapons and attacks and so forth earlier this year, they've actually managed very effectively to create, to muddy the waters, to create a lack of understanding about Syria, which helps them because it makes them seem more innocent because we can't, you know, their argument is, well, well, now we can't really prove if this or that happened. And well, we actually can, there, there are ways of proving these things. And I think that what frustrates me is having seen the same thing happen, you know, in the Brexit debates in, um, in 2016 election in America. And now this ridiculous argument about white supremacists or, or white angst, as we apparently like to call it these days. Um, and then, you know, there's nonsense about Boris over the weekend in the UK. It's this like constantly falling for this idea that um, there's some validity in this whole ridiculous chasing of your tail. You know, I mean, yes, there, it's useful to have fact checkers and to have these kind of particular apps and particular um, organizations whose job is to go and sort of dump, debunk things like Snopes and, you know, like, um, I don't know, like doctors got in touch with me after that saying we do this all the time in the medical community with all this wellness stuff. We have to tell people that, you know, you know, mm. you can't hope that you're way out of cancer. Sorry. Mm. Um, and so to me, it, it does feel a little bit like that is like um, someone coming to me and saying, do we know who did this chemical attack? I've just read this insane conspiracy theory blog. Um, it's kind of like going to a doctor and saying, "Will green juice cure my pancreatic cancer?" You know, well, why do why do we have to explain this? And then you realise that actually, that's the whole point. You know, the whole point is to create busy work so that you're running around and running in circles, and it's not actually a good faith debate. They're not countering facts with, I guess, alternative facts, and and looking to have a meaningful discussion about trying to identify where the truth lies they're just trying to create noise create confusion and that is the end in and of itself so if you have all of these journalists and experts and thinkers running around spending their life on television debating alex jones or total conspiracy theorists rather than just getting on with their work which is to <laughs> research things that we didn't know and write about things that we didn't know before to you know write journalistic pieces that explain something that wasn't reported yesterday that all of that work is being taken away from by this sort of endless cycle and it doesn't actually get us anywhere because the cycle is the intention of these people it's not the intention isn't to work together to find 
you know, a more objective truth between us. It is just to create that confusion. And if you keep falling for it, then yeah, we all get dumber. So that tweet got retweeted um, 4.8 thousand times. 16,000 people liked it. It feels sad in this day and age to like measure ourselves by likes and retweets, but it resonated. Um, And I'm wondering what, um, what effect that had on you when you saw that travel so far did what what was your rea- your reaction um mostly just that it's weird what things travel far <laughs> <laughs> it's always strange when you tweet something turn off your phone and come back 20 minutes later and it's already been retweeted like 400 times and you think oh shit today's going to be interesting hmm. um but it's very it's always very strange to me what actually gets that cut through um I didn't think that that was something that was particularly insightful or new. Um, it seemed to it seemed to strike on something that we've all been getting frustrated about, and we've spent so much time arguing about whether or not we should be banning infowars. I mean, society at large here. And finally, it got distilled into this sentence, or two sentences, sorry, that it's like. Stop! Stop chasing our tails about this. Stop listening to the bullshit. Uh, these people are here to create the circus. The point is the circus, and we need to be focused on reporting. I think that's what resonated with me, and I think that seems to be what's resonating with with people. And it just maybe maybe there's a vacuum of truth telling and people calling out bullshit these days, and it's too far in the other direction. I know that's not a question; that's a rant. But <laughs> how do you feel? <laughs> They just need more Kiwis, right? I mean, that's always, <laughs> that's always our role in the world. Like, I don't know if you find this, but I tend to find it. It's like, what doesn't matter what situation you're in, you're, I'm always the person that will be called on to just um, not stand on pomp and ceremony and sum up exactly what just happened, warts and all. Um, and I think a part of it is a virtue of, like, not having grown up in the system to some extent. You know, we were off on our little island. We don't really know how things work. We call a spade a spade. <laughs> and when you go and apply that way of living to kind of um, other events, it sort of resonates with people. Yeah, I'll buy that. And you can ski and and uh, surf within half an hour of each other. Everyone should move to New Zealand. What a great country. Uh, <laughs> and, and thank you, our sponsors, New Zealand Tourism Board. Um, That'd be nice. Wouldn't it? <laughs> like, preferably around Fijoa season. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, um, so you started this newsletter, Syria in Context, and you uh, joined forces with Tobias Schneider, who works at a, a think tank, or is it, is it okay to call it a think tank? Uh, a policy research institute. Um, and I'm wondering why you did that. Well, um, basically, Tobias and I have very similar um, sort of research interests, or reasonably similar. We've known each other for a while. And we got talking about how to monetize our Twitter accounts, basically is where it started. Because um, I was always moaning that all these people who get paid a lot of money um, to do serious stuff, be they diplomats or humanitarians or journalists, um, would say to me, oh, we rely on your tweets. Or, you know, I've seen, I've seen your tweet being sent around Damascus about this or that or the other thing. And it was because my sort of interest, I would read these um, particular websites or government ministry pages and so forth that nobody else was really bothering to read and then I'd tweet about them and I was kind of interested about like very bureaucratic stuff 
that isn't the sexy stuff that journalists tend to like. Um, and I thought, well, this doesn't seem very fair. These people are getting paid loads of money. <laughs> and they're just ripping off my tweets. Um, <laughs> and so we had been talking about how you could do that because, you know, you have these, like, a lot of these crazy kind of um, American, Russia investigation, like, but the people that have gone a little off the deep end with it all have done this and, like, created these private Twitter accounts that you have to subscribe to follow, except that they just tweet, you know, nonsense for the most part. Um, So we thought about doing that, and then we had been researching, and we thought, oh, maybe we should do a newsletter, and so we were looking around at how to do that and found your guys' thing and thought, well, well, let's give it a go and see if it works, and um, the rest is history. Right, and I'm not trying to turn this into an advertisement for Substack, honestly, Uh, but the idea of supporting yourself... um, without the um, protection or without funding from a large institution, is, is that is that quest for independence um, important to you? And is the, is the idea of doing a paid newsletter something that can help uh, support that independence? Yeah, definitely. So for us, so, you know, it's, in terms of think tanks, one of the problems that, we, and I say the we, like the world at large, has with them is that they are funded by people with interests in their output, right? So you have all these think tanks who are funded by certain groups or companies or so forth. They don't necessarily hold the feet to the fire of the people researching for them, but they hire people according to their good fit for the organization, shall we say. Right. Um, And so I don't think that model has done us many favors with Syria, to be honest. Um, and so what we wanted to be able to do was to do it in a completely independent way. We both, Tobias and I, already had profiles, like groups of people who follow our work and know what we're about and would call us up for a coffee briefing or so forth. We thought, well, all of those people would be obviously like what we've got to say enough that they would be interested to hear about it regularly. And the other thing we wanted to be able to do was... Um, we have lots of Syrian contacts that um, rather than, you know, using them like fixes in a journalistic piece, we thought it would be quite nice to be able to commission them. Um, and if it's a newsletter, it's very short. Most of our pieces are sort of four to 600 words, the, the kind of f- policy-focused segments, that we could take these people with very, very niche-specific um, focus or skills and pay them a small amount of money to write a small amount of worked but about these very detailed things which um was something that i had really wanted to do and these are the kinds of topics that wouldn't pass the threshold of interest for um, a newspaper editor or even a think tank editor um but being able to you know every week be putting out this whole newsletter enables us to cover these things that otherwise wouldn't sort of reach the threshold that are interesting to people it's just whether you could get them commissioned um so that's a really awesome part of, of being able to do it is we just write about what's relevant and interesting, not what someone else thinks we should cover. That's so great to hear. That's a, that's one reason uh, we want Substack to exist and thrive so journalists can do their best work and so they can focus on the stuff uh, that they find most compelling rather than um, whatever an editor uh, graces with uh, a few hundred dollars or thousand dollars from time to time. 
Yeah, and so that respect is really great because those things don't sit on the back burner. You know, you always have that list of like 20 projects that you want to do um, and you're waiting for a news hook or for some magical day when you've got free time or you maybe don't know enough for a thousand word article but you've got 500 words. So it's sort of giving us a chance to just be able to write all of that stuff all the time um, without having to, yeah, like wait on it or or do all this huge extra amount of stuff to get it into like a long form piece. So in that respect, we're covering much more ground, which is great. Great. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, I want to be conscious of your time because I know you're on a phone that is running out of battery. (laughs) Um, But thank you very much for uh, speaking to us. And can you tell us where people uh, can find you? Uh, I'll remind you that the URL for Syria in Context is t&e.substack.com. But where else can people find you, Emma? Um, so, I I mean, they can find both Tobias and I on Twitter. Um, I am EJ Beals. Uh, that's E-J-B-E-A-L-S um, on Twitter. And Tobias is... I don't know. It's a bit Schneider. He's on Twitter as well. Um, you can just Google. Then, you can Google that name, and we'll put it in the in the post that we send out with this uh, episode. Well, I, I think I have a website as well, which is just my name. Um, uh, but you can find that on my Twitter page. Anyway, so. What's it? What EmmaBeals.com. EmmaBeals.com. Yeah, right. excellent. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Emma.